Best. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good to be with you guys once again. You learn a lot about a church when its pastor is away. And I'm, I'm encouraged as, as to how blessed I've been already this far in the service. Through the singing and the praying. Praise God for you guys. Uh, it's an honor to bring you God's word today. Uh, would you spend a moment with me in prayer? Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Would you speak to your people today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested for deceiving his investors by promising exponential growth. But in reality, it was the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. Investors lost $4 billion, with a B, and were left holding the fictitious statements that he had generated while losing their life savings and retirements. When his business was legitimate, he wasn't content with what he had, but he lusted after more and was greedy. And he even colluded with his own family members to run parts of the scheme. One of his sons, shortly thereafter, committed suicide, and Bernie recently died in April of this year from natural causes while imprisoned. If we asked Bernie when he was in his 20s, what do you want to be remembered for? This was not it. How do people rise and fall like this? Well, this morning we will see from Psalm 92, God's view of the gains and prosperity of the wicked, and in contrast to that, how he causes his people to flourish. Psalm 92, you can turn there in your own copy of God's word. You'll be helped in following along this morning. It's located in book four of the Psalter, and its author is unknown. The major themes of book four are worship, God's faithfulness, his holiness, and joy. We don't know what the background is besides what we learn from the inscription, but it sets the context for us. So let's read Psalm 92, beginning there with the inscription. A Psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. 
My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Our main point this morning is declaring who God is with our lips and our lives is the proper response to him who works to prosper his people. I'll say that again. Declaring who God is with our lips and our lives is the proper response to him who works to prosper his people. Our passage has three points this morning. Point one, the praiseworthy works of the Lord. That's verses one through five. Point two, God lifts up, um, rather, God lifts the righteous and reprehends the wicked. Verses six through nine. And the righteous flourish to make God and his deeds known. It's point three in verses 10 through 15. And we'll spend the bulk of our time there in point three. So let's go back to the inscription, often overlooked, but it says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And this is helpful in informing us that this text is a song used in particular when God's people gathered on the Sabbath, their day of rest and worship. So the psalmist has a song in response to the Lord's works on the Sabbath day, the day the Lord rested from his works. And the psalmist rested by praising his God. So point one, the praiseworthy works of the Lord. Let's read it again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy, how great are your works, O oh Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The psalmist doesn't command here, but he assumes that the saints will give thanks and sing to the Lord. And he says it is a good thing to do so. The psalmist calls the Lord, note here, the most high God. Feel free to use it in your own prayers. You can say our father, you can say the good shepherd, but also incorporate our most high God. It is the Hebrew title El Elyon, which stresses his sovereignty, his supremacy, and his strength. Note that the phrase to sing praises in verse one is a single verb, the root of the Hebrew word for psalm, meaning to play an instrument, to sing with an accompaniment. Notice here how the Lord is thanked and praised with our lips. God is honored with open hearts and mouths, but God is displeased by those who don't acknowledge him and give him thanks. See Romans 1.21 for more on that. 
because of who he is, it is also good, verse 2, to declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. His steadfast love and faithfulness are recurring themes in the Psalms that compel his people to praise him for his unending, never-ceasing, unstoppable love. It is good to regularly sing and to thank the Lord night and day. God is faithful, meaning he is loyal to his covenant, without which Israel would not have existed. Without his faithfulness, where would we be? Unlike Bernie, who made promises that he could not keep, God will do what he says because he is faithful. When he comes, his reward will be with him because he is faithful. Did you notice in verse 2 how regular the psalmist was in praising the Lord? It was morning and evening. He didn't say, well, I praised him last week. I can have today off. Or I praised him yesterday. Or even I praised him this morning. A worshiper never grows weary in praising his God for his faithfulness. Didn't you experience new mercies today? Isn't all that you have something you've received? Has God treated you according to your sins? Then give him the glory that he is due. At nighttime, when folks double check that their doors are locked, recall from last week in Psalm 91, the terror of the night, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. So you could spend each night worrying about your safety, but who better to comfort us than the Lord himself when we praise him at night? One way we can practice this kind of continual praise is to have a morning and evening devotion with our friends and family. Consider making it a regular part of your worship schedule to attend morning service, to attend evening service. In fact, you can even start that routine today. However, we don't have to wait for Sunday or a holiday to give thanks to the Lord. In every culture and age from ancient times until now, Singing has been a part of our life. In fact, Americans spend $10 billion a year on streaming music. Music is used for more than just entertainment, though. We also use it to teach history or to pass on important aspects of our culture from one generation to the next. And we sing about everything, from having the blues to being so happy. And of course, we sing about love looking for love, falling in love, and of course, losing love. But as the gospel artist Canton Jones wisely asked from God's perspective in his hit love song, how are they singing about love without singing about me? He makes a great point. The world is singing about a superficial, fleeting love, or more accurately, lust, the lust of the flesh if they only knew about God's steadfast love and the depths of Calvary's love, then they'd have 10,000 reasons to sing. Oh, the deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. When you add God's love plus his faithfulness, you get his everlasting love. Not only does the author open his mouth with praise, but he incorporates instruments. 
the psalmist declared his love each daybreak and added musical accompaniment. The scene here is just a grateful heart full of worship and adoration for his great God. He couldn't wait for the congregation to gather to praise God. When was the last time you were alone and praised the Lord? Just burst out in praise. Many music apps have music to match your mood. Whether you're relaxing, whether you're looking for inspiration, maybe it's gym time. They will send suggestions to you to listen to this. What music does your heart recommend? What is it that you yearn for? Does your soul have a mode for praise and worship, for raising an anthem to the king beyond Sundays? And if not, why? At church, do you sing loudly or do you lip sync? Do you purposely arrive at church after the singing is over, but on time for the sermon? Even if you don't like the songs, do you love the God who we're singing about? And if so, then sing to him. But you say, I can't sing. Well, like Brother Warner said about the children, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And if that's you, John Wesley wrote these directions for singing. In it, he lays out some principles. Number one, sing them exactly as they are printed without altering or mending them at all. Two, see that you join the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. Three, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now no more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Four, sing modestly. Do not bawl as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation, that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together so to make one melodious sound. Five, sing in time. Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before and do not stay behind it, but attend closely to the leading voices. Lastly, six, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or other creatures in order to attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually, so shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve here and reward you when he comes with the clouds of heaven. So praise God for our singers who lead us faithfully each week. And when you see Joe with his saxophone warming up, you know it's about to be on. I appreciate the members of our body like Adam and Shantae Johnson, who invite members over to their house just to have praise and worship. Amen. We sing because that's what we're made for. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But God's love and faithfulness is not the only reason we sing and give thanks. According to verse four, 
His works have made the psalmist glad. What has the Lord done, you ask? Well, let's look at his resume. He created all things, visible and invisible, land and sea and air, and all creatures great and small, flung stars into space without number. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the righteous judge and ruler of all the earth, setting up kings and putting them down, causing wars to cease. The greatest war of all against evil, he won as the undisputed champion. He sent his son to free us from sin and Satan's snare. Jesus died and he rose victoriously so that all who believe in him would share an eternal fellowship with his son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. After the psalmist finished reviewing what the Lord had done, he broke out into praise. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. When the Bible talks about God's work, it refers to all that he does. In other words, God's government or his rule over nature and history. God has his own cabinet as he rules with the Holy Spirit and the Son. And nothing happens that does not first come across his desk. Have you ever seen a bug that you've never seen before? God's works are innumerable. Have you ever heard of news across the world and you wondered, well, how could that be? God's works are innumerable. As glad as the psalmist was about the vast creation, what he made and wanted to shout about the most was God's work of redemption. You see, the psalmist knew from the other prophetic psalms that they were all writing and pointing to the Messiah. Like Psalm 22, where David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he too saw the day of Christ and was glad. The very man that God created said and said it was good, he now rises up, looks out at the creation, and says, God, I agree with you. Your works are very great. God's thoughts are untraceable. You get the feeling here that the author is standing in the midst of the Grand Canyon, and he just feels his smallness before a great God, and he's overwhelmed. The righteous give themselves to seeking the Lord's mind and heart, to learning what he is like, and God is pleased to reveal bits of his glory. But we'll see in verse 6 that not everyone shares this same joy and delights themselves in God's works. Point two. God exalts the righteous and reprehends the wicked. Read with me verses 6 through 9. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So there's another theme that runs through the wisdom literature, and it's that of the righteous, also known as the wise, and the wicked, also known as the fool. You ever watch a TV show or a movie, and a new character is introduced, and you get the feeling, this guy's going to be the first one to die. <laughs> this joker ain't going to make it. 
you say to yourself. And that's the sad and brief storyline of the wicked. He's not going to make it to the end. And even worse, he has no idea. So don't get too connected to this character, not in the Psalms or in real life, for their time is short and their end is bitter. The fool is a fool because he ignores the works of the Lord that the creation plainly testifies about in according to Psalm 19. Worse than a fool, he is like a beast, losing all sound judgment because he's not using his God-given faculties to reason. God's glory is not hidden in a monastery or in books. It's not just for scholars or the learned. Wasn't the birthplace of Christ revealed to poor shepherds? Yet the fool ignores all the works of God that his people rejoice in. Paul explains it this way in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Yes, it is true that some unbelievers do prosper in this life. But we see in verse 7, because they have rejected the light, they fail to understand that their prosperity is no sign of God's approval. Bernie Madoff was the man in the 90s, but scripture says in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, but because of their rampant wickedness in the face of God's goodness, they will, according to verse 7, be doomed to destruction forever. The psalmist likens the wicked to grass, a plant with a short lifespan, because it is either mowed down or because of extreme temperatures. It withers and becomes lifeless and dormant. During their lifespan, the wicked exploited, they raped, pillaged, plundered, but on judgment day, it's game over. They will be cut down like grass. Psalm 49 says, death will be the shepherd of the wicked. Not only will they be cut off, but their memory, the memory of them will be gone. So in the next generation, they will say, Bernie who? But Moses in Psalm 90 made a similar contrast between the Lord and man. And he said, you return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as like a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. And on that day, God will be seen as the high and exalted one through the destruction and of his enemies, which is also the work of God that his people marvel at in amazement. We are in awe in no small part due to the fact that we all deserve the same fate. But because Christ was treated like the wicked, his life was cut off and he was separated from the Father and substituted for sinners, now those who are declared righteous have a completely different outcome. Point three, the righteous are preserved to make God and his deeds known. 
Read with me verses 10 through 15. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard of the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Who declared that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The psalmist gets personal, as noted by the first time that he's used some personal pronouns. You see there, my and me, when he says, my horn and over me. The psalmist compares the strength of the righteous to that of an animal. You remember earlier that the wicked was likened to a beast, but in their case, it was for their spiritual dullness. The righteous are so exalted, so favored by God, that they are described as having the strength of an ox. Not like a domesticated dairy cow, but that of an untamed wild ox. In the Bible, horns symbolize power. And God exalts the horn of the righteous and cuts off the horn of the wicked, which is why they sprout up for a short time. This idea of having fresh oil symbolizes consecration and the anointing of God's people. Oil was symbolically associated with joy and festivity, honor and health, both physical and spiritual, while its absence spelled sorrow and the withdrawal of it of all that is good in life. It was a sign of God's provision for his people. Remember, Elijah was concerned about the poor widow and if she had any oil? Struggling Christians, fighting for contentment and joy or wrestling with doubts, need not fear of running out of God's fresh oil. Most of us drove here in a car today. If you neglect the low, light en the low engine light in your car that shows your car does not have sufficient lubrication, the engine will create friction. The friction will create heat as metal rubs against metal. And soon, your engine will just seize and stop completely beyond repair. It will just now be good for recycling and to, to make something else. New motors are expensive. But more importantly is your soul. Christian, are you living life on your, in your own strength, living in the flesh, in constant friction with others? Or are you relying on the gracious oil that God liberally pours out? Fighting sin alone is a plan for failure. Neglecting to fellowship with others stifles growth. God's plan is for you to live a victorious, spirit-filled Christian life in community with others. He has exalted you and strengthened you and upheld you. Paul said that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What chance do our enemies have against you when God is for you? If God's enemies are finally destroyed, in verse 7, we can be confident that we too will see the downfall of our enemies. Saints, 
Sin was defeated at the cross. And when Jesus returns, you will know the same victory over sin fully and finally. We see in verse 12, in contrast to the fleeting lives of the wicked, who are like the grass, are two beautiful pictures of the longevity of the righteous, pictured by a cedar and a palm tree. Now, grass has shallow roots that are threatened by drought and insects. Not so with the deep roots of trees. They reach down to find water sources. In fact, you may have had um, the, un the unfortunate of having your sewage line blocked because there was a tree root that invaded your water pipes. So they look for water sources. Therefore, trees will grow in even harsh conditions. Notice that the righteous are described as flourishing, like a deep-rooted, water-seeking tree. Flourish is the same word used in verse 7 to describe the wicked. It's translated as sprout, which is what they would do for a short time. Additionally, the cedar symbolized growth and strength. The cedars owed their existence to God, who had planted them. The palm tree was a symbol of both beauty and prosperity. Palms were used in the construction of booths and the festival of booths. In John 12, 13, the crowd used palm branches to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem, but they quickly turned from shouting Hosanna to crucify him. Now, closely look at the text. It does not say the righteous are like palm branches, but palm trees. On Palm Sunday, palm branches may honor Christ at his triumphal entry, but palm tree Christians honor him year-round. The palm is distinguished for its rich, stalwart life. It is a life that triumphs over the hard conditions of the desert. Mysteriously, it can so change the elements found in the unkindly soil around it to make them minister to its growth and strength and fruitfulness. One commentator noted, the palm flourishes in nothing more than in pers a persistency of life and service that defies the years, that knows no old age, that perpetuates an essential youth. Recall in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, which says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf also does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Are you seeking out water of the word that you might grow and flourish thereby? One cup of the word on a Sunday morning is not sufficient to run the Christian race for a whole week. It's full of obstacles and dangers, and some travelers grow weary and don't finish the race for lack of water of the word. In scripture, man is usually likened to the changing grass and fading flowers or chaff. But believers are also like a tree in three important ways. One, we are a fixed thing with deep roots, planted by rivers. We are a growing and a living thing. During rough winters of life and hot summers, we keep on developing. His leaf also shall not wither, because we have a God-imparted life. Thirdly, we are a beautiful thing, like a tree. Few objects in nature are so pleasing as a prosperous, fruit-bearing tree. 
Now, trees need water and fertilizer and sunshine for optimal growth. And pruning, which is a painful process. Earlier this month, my family and I were in Ocean City, Maryland, and on the way, I was observing all of the trees along the roadside, tall ones, short ones, and everything in between. Of all the trees I saw, not one of them was working, but they were all growing. They don't trim, they don't prune themselves and groom each other, they don't reach over and clean off the next tree. God is the planter. He is the gardener, the pruner, the protector of the trees that he plants. Their help and ours comes from the Lord. And they lift up their branches in praise to God, their sustainer. Isaiah saw a day when the trees clapped their hands. Now, how did the status of man change from that of being fleeting like the grass to becoming like a mighty cedar tree? It's only because Christ, the root and offspring of David, was cursed and hung on a tree that the wicked like you and I could be declared righteous. In verse 13, flourish is used here a third time. And we see why these trees have such growth based on where they are planted. It says it's in the house and courts of the Lord. It's the soil that determines the quality of the yield and the harvest. On a side note, the broccoli and the vegetables we eat today is not as nutritious as that of our grandparents' day because the soils are depleted of minerals. So the plants absorb the minerals from the ground, and that's why when we eat them, we get the minerals. So what chance did the wicked have of surviving outside of God's house in the wilderness of the desert without God's oil and water? What great hope does the Christian have and not just making it to heaven, but growing to full maturity. Now, trees don't plant themselves in the house of the Lord. If you want to be planted there, you must enter through the door, and Christ is the door. We see in verse 14 that God doesn't plant saints in a fountain of youth. That's not what keeps us growing. They will age, yet they are fresh and strong and vigorous and not dried up. Too many people's lives are anemic and languish. Recall what Deuteronomy 34 said of Moses. He was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated. Old age for the saints is such a blessing of the Lord and for his church. It is a sign of God's love and faithfulness to them who he has called and planted and cared for for many years. Proverbs 16 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Joel 2 said, your old men shall dream dreams. Now our culture does not value seniors and the elderly. But if you wanna prepare for the next season of life, they are who you must turn to. How do babies learn to walk and to talk? It's not from hanging out in the, the crib and the playpen but it's from seeing people walking on two feet, conjugating verbs and enunciating nouns. This is how they learn. You want to know how to live and die well? Then you need some experienced folks in your life who know what it means to wait on the Lord, 
because you don't stay young, strong, and healthy for long. Young men need to see older men together, and likewise for our young ladies. Isaiah 40, 31 says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Matthew Henry wrote, the last days of the saints are sometimes their best days and their last work, their best work. This indeed shows that they are upright. Perseverance is the surest evidence of sincerity. The church is growing vigorously in tough, spiritually desert places like North Korea, Eritrea, and Tibet, where they are not free to meet publicly, but yet that's not stopping them. How is your own personal growth? Be encouraged if your leaves and your fruit are small now when you have God as your gardener. His plan is to conform you to the image of his son, and he is faithful to do it. Why does the Lord bring the righteous to such a privileged place? Is it so that they may show off the size of their fruit and their accomplishments? No. We began this psalm with the righteous praising God with their lips, and we ended with them praising God with their lives, as indicated by verses 2 and 15 that begin with the phrase, to declare. Their vitality into old age is so they show not just with their lips, but with their works that he is upright. Verse 15 says, he is my rock. Now God is a rock in the eyes of both the righteous and the unrighteous. To one, he is a rock to stand on for sure footing. To the other, he is a rock under which they are crushed. Some call him father, but others will only know him as judge. Seeing the works of God reminds us daily that this is my father's world. The hymn writer said, I rest me in this thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. So what makes you glad? And will it last? The world will puff us up only to bring us crashing down to our own destruction. Be careful where you invest your life. Learn from the trees. Learn here from the psalmist. Learn from some older saints. I won't tell you who they are. They will have to identify themselves. We are kept by God in his house to flourish so that we may daily come and praise and glorify our God. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you because of your works, because of all that you have done. You are the ruler and governor of all history and of all nature. And we bow before you humbly, Lord, just to say who you are and just to thank you and to praise you because this is what you have made us for. And by your grace, you've caused us to be born again so that we may see beyond just the creation to the creator himself. And you have revealed yourself in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give you praise and thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray.